When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, guys, welcome to October and the Unit 3 test review. This test is on uh, all those linkage institutions that we've been talking about. Remember, that's kind of the overarching theme of this unit is linkage institutions. And, you know, how does how do we as citizens and individuals get kind of linked up and hooked up with our uh, politicians so that they know what we're thinking? Uh, and, you know, there's the, the, the direct means, which is writing letters and making phone calls and emails and, and things like that. Uh, but, you know, that's always not super effective because, you know, we might be low on the totem pole. At least I know I am. Maybe you're pretty high up there and have a, a direct number to a, a politician, but I don't. And so these are ways for me to, to get my, my voice heard if I really want to. And not everybody's going to do it. You know, not everybody's going to go to a political party to, to try and get their point of view out there uh, or their concerns or, or whatever it might be. Uh, most people, the way they're going to do it is go vote. And, and so that's why elections is the, the biggest Lincoln institution that's out there. Um, because when we go to, when we go vote as voters, we can send a clear message um, to our politicians that this is what we want. We believe already. So Donald Trump was elected in 2016. That was a message. If you, if you watch a lot of the, the congressmen kind of, joined on his bandwagon, his coattails, whatever you want to call it, uh, and, and followed along. If he gets voted out of office, then some of those same people that are still in office are going to have to change their, their points of view and, and, and switch gears and go a different direction. So, you know, it's, a, it's a, a great message. So just keep in mind that that's kind of the overarching theme. So on the test, when you take it, remember, there's I said there's about 40, 50 questions on the, on the test, but I'm going to shuffle it to where you only see a couple of them. So I might talk about something on this thing. And you might not see that on the test, but your friend might. So just keep that in mind that the questions are going to be randomized and you're only going to see uh, a couple of them. But let's get going. So take a you know, pause with me and go get your uh, study guides because it might be good to, to follow along so you can jot down stuff as you want to. Um, but uh, anyways, we're going to get going here. So the first thing is the voting rights. And the voting rights, remember, the, the big thing for the voting rights is the extension of political participation. All right. And when we say political participation, how did these things expand the electorate, basically? How did it make it better or easier for people to vote? And so we have a couple of things there. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is the, the first one on the list. And this was a piece of legislation that came out after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, obviously, because the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, it was set up to stop discrimination in several places. OK, but it did not, it did not address specifically uh, voter registration, polling places and things like that. So uh, there's the need for it, because people even after the Civil Rights Act came out, people were still able to discriminate. And so the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was set up to make it quicker, easier and safer for people, uh, African-Americans specifically, to to go out and register to vote. So that's the, the big thing there. And so that's going to expand the electorate by you know people who previously <clears throat> had been fearful of going out to register to vote and things like that now they can they can feel better you know, it still wasn't 
super, you know, it wasn't always guaranteed, hey, this is going to be super safe and things like that. But people could feel a little bit better uh, about going out there and registering and then voting. So there's that. Uh, the 15th Amendment, the 17th Amendment, 19th, 24th, and 26th. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so those are the, the next things. The 15th Amendment, uh, you'll probably remember this from, from U.S. history and the, the Civil Rights Amendments. The 15th was the, the final one of the Civil War Amendments. This is the one that's going to give all African-American males the right to vote. And so that's going to obviously expand the, the electorate by increasing the the population, the voting population uh, by bringing in this whole other group of people. OK, the 17th Amendment. This is one that people get confused on. Uh, it's the direct election of senators. So prior to this, our state legislatures would pick our state senators. We had no say so. And I, I said state senators. I meant to say national senators. Um, so we had no say so. You know, yes, we got to pick our state legislatures and all that kind of stuff. But uh, then they could pick who they wanted to. And so uh, we, the, not we, but the progressive back then got this pushed through the 17th Amendment, which is going to make it to where we directly elect our senators. So how does that increase political participation uh, and all that kind of stuff. Well, now we have a whole new set of elected officials that we're voting for. Okay. So instead of having just the one, which is the house being a direct election, <clears throat> we now have two, we have the, the house and the Senator Senate that we directly elect. So it increases our ability to affect change. If that makes sense to y'all, the 19th amendment gave women the right to vote. Uh, pretty simple, just like the 15th Amendment gave African-American males the right to vote. The 19th Amendment is going to expand the, the political participation uh, by increasing the number of people that can vote. 24th and 26th Amendment uh, come later. The 24th Amendment is going to be the poll tax. It's going to end the poll tax, so it's going to remove those barriers to voting. So that's going to increase participation by now. People don't have to worry about trying to, to either find a way to get around the poll tax or find a way to pay the poll tax. That's no longer a fear. Uh, that cannot be done. So that's going to increase political participation. And finally, the 26th Amendment, lower the voting age from um, 21 to 18. Now, I actually just watched uh, a little piece on the, on the 26th Amendment that I found kind of interesting. And uh, the, the Vietnam War had a lot to do with getting it, getting it finished and pushed through because 18-year-olds were being drafted and sent off to fight. Um, but they couldn't vote. All right. Uh, but this movement actually started after World War II, which I didn't realize. Uh, you know, the World War II veterans came home, you know, 19, 20 years old and wanted to go vote. And you know, the old people were like, well, you're not old enough. You, you're, you're not 21 yet. You don't have enough experience and all that kind of stuff. And um, so that's when the movement started to drop the to drop the voting age was after World War II. And those people kind of made the the push. And if you, if you pay attention, you know, they weren't old enough to vote when they got back, some of them. But then when this thing got passed in the seventies, you know, so that whole generation, that was their generation that had pushed this through. Okay. In that same piece, I saw uh, another, another thing that I found interesting and that's, there's a, a movement to, to lower the voting age to 16. And, you know, they made some good points about it. I just, I, I'm not sure I'm on board with 16 year olds being able to, being able to vote. Yeah, I've taught 16 year olds before. I just I don't know that they would make good choices. There's some that would. It's, it, and the problem with with 16 year olds voting to me anyways, is there's it's just so hit or miss. There's there's some really good conscientious people, 16 year olds. But there's also some really highly aloof, very impulsive 16 year olds. So it, it's it's just too hit or miss to me. Now, they did make the point 
one of the arguments against 16-year-olds voting is that their brain's not developed and they can't make good decisions and things like that. Uh, but then they brought on an expert, uh, a doctor, who said it's actually old people who have the brain problems, whose brains are you know, not keeping up, not firing uh, on all cylinders and things like that. So that, that was an interesting point they brought up. But anyways, just uh, the 26th Amendment is going to increase you know, political participation because there's more people that can vote. So at the end of the day, that's what that is. Okay. All right. Next up is voter turnout. And the first thing there is political efficacy. So political efficacy, remember, this is your belief that your vote counts and that your vote matters. That's what political efficacy is. You have a belief that you going to vote is going to make a difference. Now, the problem with this is some people believe that they don't have this. They, they My vote doesn't matter. So why should I go vote? And my argument is the problem with that feeling is that you don't know if your vote's going to matter. There's, there's, no, there's no way to know if your vote's not going to matter until election day and election night. And by the time you realize it, it might be too late. So you got to go. You got to believe that it's going to matter. And, I, you know, I've, I've ta we've talked about Georgia a little bit. I, I told you that I thought Georgia would stay red, but now the polls are showing it might go blue. You know, and so whichever way you feel, red or blue, OK, uh, your vote's probably going to matter here in Georgia. So it's going to be an important thing to go out and do. But once again, you know, I, I get it. If you're in California and you're a Republican, you're, you're, you're probably feeling, man, my vote's not going to matter because the state's been voting blue for so long and it feels like it's, it's so blue. Uh, but you never know. OK, you never know. So you, you, you got to go and vote that. Uh, the responses to a lack of voter turnout. Now, what this means is. Hey, how can we get people to come out and vote? And uh, you know, some of the things that that people have done, the government has done, is, is things like pass the Motor Voter Act, which makes it easier to register to vote. Uh, you've seen probably commercials and, and things where people are being encouraged to go out to vote. Uh, their MTV used to have the the Rock the Vote, um, trying to get kids to come out and vote and things like that. So uh, that's what that means, and what we're talking about there with the responses to the lack of voter turnout. Hey, how can we get people to come out and vote? Now we know we don't do incentives. We know we don't do penalties. So you know that that's off the table. So how we, we can make it how can we make it as easy as possible? And on top of the motor voter stuff, we got absentee balloting. So you don't even have to go into the polls on uh, you know November third. So you've got absentee stuff. Uh, you've got early voting. So there's a, a lot of things the government's doing to try and get people to go and vote because sometimes you know that one Tuesday doesn't work. All right, political parties, the nomination process. So. Uh, you know, the nomination process has been kind of taken out of the hands of the political parties. Remember, uh, they will put people out there, you know, and they'll, but Democrats, they had you know, 25 people running for, uh, for office. Okay. And, uh, for the, for the democratic nominee and you know, the, the Democrats in reality, they would have rather just had one person because that saves time, money, and resources instead of, you know, having 25 people running from the Democratic Party. So remember, the, the process is kind of out of the, the party's hands and it's more into the people's hands uh, when it comes to the nomination process. Now, they still have to win the ballots, to win the delegates, excuse me, and they still have to go to the convention and they have to get those those votes at the uh, convention. 
But we know going in, we knew that Joe Biden was going to be the Democratic nominee, despite having all those other people running. You know, people dropped out of the races as they went, and they they, they weren't having good showings. Okay, uh, the task of a political party. Remember, they do a couple things. Uh, number one is going to be raise money and support candidates. Uh, so you know, the Democrats they are pumping a lot of money into uh, a couple of senator races here. Uh, John Ossoff being one of the main ones, they're putting a lot of money behind him. They also put a lot of money behind him in 2000, I think it was 18 or I can't remember when he ran against Karen Handel. Um, that's when my initial hatred hatred for him started, just because of all the commercials that were out there. Uh, I really know nothing about him other than, man, he runs a lot of commercials. Um, so, but anyways, they're putting a lot of money behind that. So that's number one. They also recruit people. So they will, they, they, they are always on the look for candidates to run for office. All right. Uh, and when I say looking for candidates, so they're looking for people who they think could win seats, wherever those seats might be. We'll talk about that strategy in just a second. But they're always looking for those people that are you know, involved in politics. They're not like coming to schools and looking in classes and college classrooms or high school classrooms. Oh, that guy looks good. Let me pick him. You know, they're, they're looking for people who are involved in politics, who are well-spoken, have you know the looks that they want, the demographics that they want, that they can put up for office. So that's what we're talking about there. Uh, so they do come up with strategies. All right. There are people dedicated to looking at the House and the Senate races that are out there. OK. And, you know, the Democrats, they're looking at a couple things. The Republicans, they're looking at a couple things. So when they are looking at these these things, they don't really want to run a good challenger against a strong incumbent because the strong incumbent probably is going to win. Remember, we said incumbents win 90 percent of the time on the House side and 70, 75 percent of the time on the Senate side. So we don't want to see. OK, or not we, but parties don't want to run their their strong versus strong, because if they lose, that might derail the strong candidates, the strong challengers career. OK, to an extent when it's happened before people lose and then they get labeled as a loser and it's tough for them to come back. So that happens. What they're looking for is a couple of things. They're looking for open seats. And that means there's no there's no incumbent. So like Gwinnett, our district was an open seat this year because Rob Woodall was not running. So, you know, the Democrats are going to put their best foot forward. Republicans are putting their best foot forward here. OK, now I have not seen much from either one of those. So I'm not sure what's going on with that race. Um, I, I think it'll probably, I think when it will probably blue for the first time uh, in the house in a long, long time. Uh, but anyways, so that's, that's that part. The other thing they're looking for when they're looking at all these races is where are their weak opponents? So where is there a district where that house member, you know, won by 2% last time? And their numbers are down this go round, and I can put a strong challenger against that incumbent, and I can probably win. Now that's for both the Republicans and Democrats. Okay, so where are their weak incumbents? They're looking for those kinds of things so they can snag those seats. So that's the goal there. Okay, um, okay. So that is the task of the political party. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to come up with their platform and things like that. But uh, that whole the money thing, you know, and the spending and, and supporting candidates and looking for candidates, and then. Um, you know, helping out with the races and things like that. That's, that's kind of the big things. All right, the Democrats versus the Republicans. If I remember correctly, this test, there's going to be uh, some ideology stuff and it'll be the, the split, the columns, if I remember correctly. And for this one, what you need to remember, and, you know, the Democrats, they, you know, economically, uh, business-wise, they're going to be for more government involvement, more government regulation, more government taxes 
uh, on the businesses uh, on the Republican side, they're going to be for less. They want the to make the, the standards less or not standards, but the, the restrictions and taxes less for businesses and let them operate and, and create jobs and, and growth and things like that. Socially, remember, the Democrats are going to be for more freedom of choice. So they're going to be for you know, legalization of marijuana. They're going to be for pro-choice, let women make those choices. Um, socially, you know, taking care of, of people, being more involved uh, with with uh, more uh, money going to people who need help. The Republicans are going to be the opposite. They're going to be for uh, more government involvement in your your life choices. So, you know, that's why they're going to be pro, pro-life. pro They want to um, be able to you take that choice out of your hands. They're not going to be for legalizing marijuana. Uh, they're not going to be for they're I shouldn't say not for, but they don't want people to, to get on to get used to being having government assistance. They would rather you out there working and things like that. OK, James Madison and Fed 10. Just remember, that was all about factions and his belief that the, the republic would handle that. Uh, you know, I, I would like to now that I'm kind of thinking about it, I wouldn't mind seeing. Uh, some people address this, uh, not y'all, but like political scientists and that. Does it still hold true that, you know, does the large republic keep these in check? Because it feels like we're run by Democrats and Republicans. And then you've got the voting type, split ticket, party line, uh, retrospective and perspective. So, uh, you know, you have, uh, well, let's go to the, the rational choice. All right, remember, that's where you're making the choice that's best for you. Retrospective is where you're voting based on what has the candidates done in the past. Prospective voting is what are they going to do in the future for me? Okay. Uh, party line voting, that's where you just vote for the party no matter what. And then split ticket is when you go in and you vote Republican here, Democrat there, Democrat there, Republican here, so on and so forth. So you vote, uh, just you don't vote down the party. Okay. Uh, political parties change and adapt. So changes to the presidential election. So uh, the presidential campaigns used to be all about the parties and it was the strong party line uh, and all that kind of stuff. And we've seen a shift from the parties to the campaigns are now more centered around the candidate themselves. So we've gone from a party centered campaigns to more individual candidate centered campaigns. And that's the, the that's the big change. Okay, and parties have had to adjust because no longer are people running and just doing what the party line says. Now they're running on their own agenda, and the parties are having to kind of fall in behind that. So think of Trump; he's a great example. You know, he's not—he wasn't really truly a Republican, and there's a lot of Republicans that didn't like him. Uh, but he ran, he won uh, based on what he was saying, not necessarily what the Republican Party was saying, and a lot of Republicans have fallen in line with that. Okay. Third parties, the goals of a third party candidate. Remember, there's a couple of them. They want to play the role of a spoiler. They want to try and take votes away from the major candidate party candidates. So that's one of their big goals is to to kind of get some votes away. We we gave the example of Ross Perot back in the 90s, 92, uh, taking votes away from uh, George Bush and not necessarily giving the election to Bill Clinton, but he helped with that. Then the other thing, remember, is to get their agenda onto the radar or even made a part of the national party's platform. So if a third party candidate can get something that they're running on, and it might just be one thing, if they can get the other parties to address that and make it a part of that platform of the Republicans or the Democrats, then that's a success for the third party. Because remember, our system is stacked, which is the next thing against third party candidates. Mainly, remember, there's a winner take all system that we have. 
um, in the Electoral College. So candidates, if they win just a majority, a simple majority in 48 of our 50 states, then they get all the Electoral College votes. And just no third party candidate is going to win that because most people feel if I vote for a third party candidate, I'm throwing my vote away. Why am I going to do that? All right. And so uh, it's really our system with the two parties and the two dominant parties is really uh, against the third parties. Now, Nebraska and Maine do proportional voting, where if you get the, the proportion of the Electoral College votes that you got in relationship to the popular vote. So if you get 20% of the, of the popular vote, you get 20% of the electoral vote, so on and so forth. Uh, it's still That's still a pretty high threshold for third-party candidates when people feel that if I vote for them, I'm going to throw my vote away. Remember, they also have problems getting on the ballot. It takes a high number of signatures uh, and polling to get them onto the, the ballots in states, so not everybody's going to be uh, you know, there's there's some third party candidates that might be on the ballot here in Georgia, but they might not be on the ballot in Alabama. They might not be on the ballot in, in California and other places. So there's that problem and that issue. And then they have a hard time getting onto the debate stage. Also, they have to be polling at a certain level. And most of the time they're not going to be. I think it's 15 percent. Maybe they have to be at least at that threshold. And most of the time they're just not there. All right. Uh, let's see. Interest groups. Couple things here. First off, let's do political parties versus the interest groups. Remember, political parties, they are different from interest groups in what they want to do in the government. They're the same in that they both want to, or they're both um, like minded individuals. Okay, so a conglomeration of people who think the same about ideologies or that single interest or whatever it might be. Where they differ is that political parties want to run people for office and they want to take office and that's how they want to control things. Interest groups just want to influence the government. That is their goal, is to influence uh, the government. So they don't want to be running uh, people for office because they, they don't, they're not concerned about everything. Political parties and people who are running for office, they have to be concerned about everything. They had to be concerned about foreign policy, domestic policy, okay? Uh, they had to be worried about the economy and all this other stuff that goes into to running a country. Interest groups are just worried about their one main issue, and that's all they want to be concerned about. They don't want to have to worry about the other stuff, okay? And so interest groups want to influence policy. Political parties want to form policy and run policy. So how do interest groups influence policy? Well, mainly through uh, the, the committees that they're going to be uh, – you know, they're going to put money into uh, congressmen who are on committees that affect their legislation. We haven't got to this part yet, but there are standing committees in Congress, and they're all dedicated to specific areas of the of the country. Okay, um, education, agriculture, business, finance—you know—all this kind of different stuff. And so, when a bill goes to one of those committees, all right, uh, the interest groups are calling up, saying, "Hey, we like this bill. We want you to pass it." hey, we don't like this bill, we want you to kill it, or we want you to kill this part of it, or whatever it might be. So they want them to make changes. That's how they influence, okay? The other way they influence is lobbying. So interest groups will pay lobbyists to go try and influence these congressmen. And, that, and that's part of that whole, uh, you know, vote this way for this bill, or vote this way, or, or make these changes. Part of that job falls to the lobbyists, okay? Because it's much easier for a lobbyist to, to get in usually. They have better contacts uh, in Congress then possibly uh, an interest group by themselves might already. But lobbying, that's where they're looking. That's where they're going to go influence. Remember, lobbyists will try and influence congressmen. Remember, they also sometimes will partner with congressmen. Uh, maybe they'll help write a bill because they are experts, okay, a lot of times in the stuff that they're going to be doing. Uh, they will go testify before Congress, you know, when it comes to time to, 
to talk about a bill. Uh, every bill has hearings and discussions, and, and people do come in to speak on the bill. And sometimes those are lobbyists because they are experts in that area. Alrighty. And then the amicus curiae briefs is just another way uh, for interest groups to to uh, affect the government, to influence the government. So this goes to Supreme Court justices. And remember, they can't donate money to Supreme Court justices. Okay, there's no way because Supreme Court justices do not run for office. They are appointed for life. And so there's no way to affect that. So how does interest groups get their ideas, their views on issues that the Supreme Court is going to be looking at to them? Well, through amicus curiae briefs. And this is where you're just writing letters to the Supreme Court and you're talking about why you think they should rule this way or that way. Now, you're not doing it for every case. OK, so you're not going to sit there and look at the docket. I just looked at the docket this morning for the Supreme Court looking for something. And, you know, there was 30, 40 cases. So you're not going to sit down. And, well, I'm going to write a letter for every one of those. You're only looking for cases that are going to be of concern to your interest group. So I saw one that was about you know, pharmaceutical companies. I didn't look into what it was about, but it, it was just an individual versus a pharmaceutical company. And so, you know, big pharma is probably writing letters to the Supreme Court thinking or saying, hey, this is what you should rule. They're going to cite past court cases and uh, try and get them to rule in their favor. Now, do the Supreme Court justices have to take all this stuff into account? No, not really. All right. But it's just a way for them to, to have a view into the public because they are pretty insulated from us. Right? If you think about it, they don't run for election. They're appointed and they're appointed for life. They can't be fired. Their salaries can't be um, decreased or increased. So there's just you know a lot of stuff that keeps them from having to worry about us. So this is just a way for them to uh, or maybe get educated on what the public is thinking. All right. Uh, the iron triangles. Remember we said, don't freak out too much about the iron triangles. It's, it's in a thing you got to know. It's a standard you got to know, but it gets put into several places, three places. And so it, we hit it a couple of different times. And so just keep that in mind um, when you see the Iron Triangle stuff. We're going to talk about it again when we get to committees, and we're going to talk about it again when we get to the uh, bureaucracy. Remember, the Iron Triangle is just a relationship between the interest groups, the committees, and the uh, bureaucratic agencies. So the interest groups are going to give money to the campaigns of people that are on the committees. All right. And they're going to give money to the people who support them. They're not going to give money to people who are against them. And they're going to give lots of money to incumbents because they know that they how they vote. They're not going to spend a lot of time giving money to challengers because they're not sure how they're going to react and how they're going to vote when they get into these committees. They're also not sure where the if that person is even going to be on that committee. So that's why they don't spend a lot of time and effort on challengers unless they just unless they've had a. Uh, you know, someone who's just constantly a thorn in their side and voted against them. They want to get rid of them. All righty. So they'll do that. And then in return, you know, the, the congressman will, will listen to them. They'll, they'll, when the, the, the lobbies come through for those interest groups, they'll, they'll take a listen. They don't have to do what they say. And most congressmen don't want to be seen as in the back pocket of lobbyists and interest groups. So they'll work pretty hard to not be. Um, but uh, that's that part. Okay. Then uh, as far as the interest groups and the, um, Agencies go, the interest group play a, the role of uh, watchdog. They're going to watch and make sure that uh, the agencies are, are following through with legislation and, and, and enforcing it how it's supposed to be. All right. Electing a president. So the rules of primaries, all right, and they vary from state to state. Uh, some states have primaries. Some states have the caucuses. 
Um, and then, you know, from state to state, it varies on how the primaries are going to work. Some states are going to um, have the primaries early. Some are going to have them late. Some are going to have open. Some are going to have closed, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Let's go and talk about it now. So the closed primary, remember, this is where you have to be a member of the political party. So the Democrats would have to be a registered Democrat to go vote in that closed primary. And this varies from state to state. Georgia was an open primary. Open means anybody can go vote. Whether you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, you can go vote uh, in the, 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 the primary here in Georgia. Remember, the fear for closed is that the other party is going to come in and vote for the worst possible candidate. All right. Caucuses. What is it? Where are they? So the, the main one, that, the, the most important one that we know of is Iowa. All right. Uh, because they're the first. They have it in their constitution that they're going to be the first. And then what is it? It's just a way of voting. OK, so for Georgia, we go on primary date and we go, we get our little card, show our ID, get a little card and we go plug it into a machine. The ballot comes up, we push in the buttons and we leave. All right. In a caucus, though, you're going to show up to an auditorium. So you'd go to the high school gym there, whatever it might be, and you would sit and you would listen to the different speakers for the candidates and you would make a decision based on what they're saying. So it's going to take a while and you're just going to go sit with the group that you want to vote for. So it's public. It's open. People can see who you vote for. Yeah, and that's not my problem. I don't really care about that. But what I care about is the fact that it's going to take a couple of hours. I just I. I I don't feel like doing that. So the voter turnout in these states where they have caucuses uh, is pretty low because people don't want to take the time to go do that. Super delegates, remember, this is a Democrat thing only. Uh, they created this back in, uh, I don't know, maybe the late 70s, where they wanted to bring a sense of legitimacy to the process. Uh, so super delegates are made up of former politicians, basically, uh, former governors, presidents, congressmen, all that kind of stuff. Alrighty. And they are not the key thing to remember here is they are not beholden to the winners. OK, so the way it works is the Democrats that were running last spring, they ran in Iowa. OK, and let's say the vote was I can't remember. It was pretty close. It was like 2020, 15, 17, so on and so forth. OK, well, if you're at the top and you won, let's say 25 percent, you got 25 percent of the delegates from Iowa. And then the runner-up got 20% of the delegates. So hopefully that makes sense to you. Okay, those people are beholden to you. Those delegates are yours. So Bernie Sanders, he was actually having some pretty good success. So he had quite a few delegates. Now, all right. So I uh, sat here and recorded this whole thing, and I talked um, for maybe 10 more minutes. Um, for no reason. Uh, so I was talking about Bernie Sanders and the super delegates, and you know, he had had the success. But the superdelegates were voting for Hillary. And so um, he wasn't as ahead as he wanted to be. And there was a lot of problems and confusion. And some of those Bernie supporters were pretty upset uh, over that. Okay. But anyway, so once again, the superdelegates, they're just going to be the, there's, I, I can't remember how, how many extra votes there are, uh, but they could tip the tables depending on how close it is. Alrighty. All right. Table analysis. That just means that there's a table on the test that you got to um, interpret. Incumbents advantage. Remember, uh, incumbents are the sitting people. So uh, we have a sitting president, an incumbent president. We have two incumbent senators running. We have uh, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. And they have some advantages. And we're going to talk mainly about the uh, 
congressional uh, advantages. So first off, you know, they have more money because typically interest groups will donate more money to the incumbents because they know how they're going to work, how they're going to operate, and all that kind of stuff. So I'll send my check to them. They also have name recognition. So they, you go to the voting booth, uh, you haven't done any research, but hey, I recognize that name. I don't know what they do or whatever, but I, I know I've seen that name on a sign or I've heard on the news or whatever it might be. So they have that name recognition. They have credit claiming that they can do. Uh, so they can say, hey, I did this for this state. <clears throat> I did this for my state. I've done this for the district or whatever it might be. So they have this credit claiming advantage. By the franking privilege, they can send out as much mail as they want to. Uh, and it's us. OK. And uh, that's some of the big advantages they have. All right. Modern campaigns. Pretty simple. Social media's effects on campaigns um, just is playing much more of a role than it used to. Obviously, social media is kind of a recent uh, phenomenon. Phenom phenomenon. There we go. Uh, and uh, you know, Trump used it pretty pretty uh, handily in the uh, 2016 election. Almost every uh, public official now has some kind of Twitter account, Instagram, whatever it might be. So it's just it's playing a huge role uh, there. Campaign finance, what we talked about on Thursday. So PACs, political action committees. You know, don't get too tripped up on this. Just remember that we started reforming. We've we've been reforming uh, campaign finance for a long time. There's been restrictions put on uh, since the early 1900s. Look at how much money you can donate. <clears throat> in the 1970s, we had the Campaign Finance Reform Act, which put restrictions, and we did it again in 2002, where the bi bi <clears throat> bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act, uh, otherwise known as the McCain-Feingold, that's what I call it, McCain-Feingold Act, um, and it just it, it tops out how much people can donate. It tops out how much businesses can donate, how much interest groups can donate. All right. But the problem is businesses and interest groups and these other groups, they have more money sometimes. So if I top out my my uh, individual contribution or if I top out my business contribution, but I want to give more money to them, I want to be able to do that. And so they created these PACs, political action committees. And so here I am as an individual. But then over there to my right, there is a political action committee. I'll donate money to them and then they'll turn around and donate to the, the, the candidate. So it's just a workaround. And there's a political opportunity up here. And I'm pointing in different directions. You can't see me because it's a podcast. But hopefully you get the idea. So when my contribution has been maxed out and I want to still give money, then I just give it to these other groups who then give it to the candidates that I want to donate to. And there's packs for everybody. OK, so there's a way for me to give my money. Now, those have been regulated since then. <clears throat> and we created super packs. And then those got regulated. And now we, we have all kinds of stuff. Uh, and some of them can donate money to to a candidate, some of them can't. Some of them can only use their money to, to run commercials. There's all kinds of things that go into this. All right. Uh, soft money versus hard money. Soft money is going to be the unregulated money. And this is to parties. You can donate as much as you want to to the Republicans or Democrats or any third party you want to. It is unregulated. So they, it's almost endless. OK. Hard money is going to be the money that is to the uh, candidate. And it has to be kept track of. It has to be accounted for uh, who gave it to you, because once again, they're keeping track and they're going to limit how much you as an individual can give to a uh, candidate. All right. <clears throat> Citizens United versus FEC. Remember, Citizens United was a nonprofit organization and they took money from individuals. They took money from big businesses, corporations, and their goal. And what they did was they created a movie about Hillary Clinton. Hillary, the movie, uh, that made her look pretty bad as a candidate. And so that's where that's what this is about. And then the question was, does these businesses, these corporations donating money to this group 
and then them running this movie, does that violate the McCain-Feingold Act? And that's the question the Supreme Court had to ask answer. And eventually they are going to say, no, it does not, that it is free, that the money they're spending is an extension of free speech. So corporations should not be limited, you know, just because they're they're donating money to a group that shouldn't limit them <clears throat> uh, what those groups can say. So free speech is tied to your money so that you, know, you can spend your money, donate your money how you want to. And it's tied to that free speech. All right. Last thing here is what we did on Friday. So I'm not going to spend a great deal of time investigating journalism. That is just that um, piece where we are not we, but journalists are going after the politicians. Almost think out of Tarbell. Think uh, the guys did uh, Watergate. You know, they uh, they went after the story versus letting the story come to them. So they're in there digging around uh, like, you know, I don't I'm not sure how the, the, the Times got a hold of uh, Trump's tax records or whatever, but probably some investigative journalism was, was involved there. Narrow casting. You all know what this is. This is where just uh, a station is going to concentrate on one area. <clears throat> And that's all they're going to run stuff on. So CNN is only news. Fox News is only news. ESPN is only sports. Uh, Food Network's food, so on and so forth. Agenda setting. Don't get this and confused with policy agenda. Policy agenda is the politicians and what they're working on. And then the media just following that story. Agenda setting is where the media sets the agenda. So they look at all the stories they could possibly run and they pick what they think is the most important. Well, once they pick what they think is the most important, guess who then thinks what is most important? We do as individuals. So we're watching the news. Oh, the news is talking about that. I probably need to be concerned about it. If they weren't talking about it, and I use the example of Flint, Michigan, you know, that's a horrible situation. But if the media wasn't talking about it, I probably would have never known. The watchdog function, this is just the media uh, watching. It's almost that investigative journalism type thing where they are watching. They're looking for those instances where politicians, uh, celebrities, whoever has messed up and they can uh, almost kind of like a gotcha. All right. Um, but they're keeping them in line, making sure they're doing what they're supposed to. If some politician is taking money, bribe from lobbyists and things like that, then those investigative journalists, the news media is going to call them out usually. OK, equal time, right of reply. Equal time is going to be where uh, stations have to offer uh, time, add time to both candidates. They can't say, well, I'm only going to sell to Republicans or I'm only going to sell to Democrats. They got to sell to both. And then right of reply. If you are attacked uh, on a new station or a TV show or whatever it might be, you have the right to, to request to go onto it and defend yourself. OK. All right. So that is that. Sorry about the mix up there in the middle. I talked for about 10 extra minutes there um, and then I had to listen to my voice. So I feel your pain having to listen to me. Uh, so I knew where I had left off because it didn't tell me where I left off. So anyways, guys, uh, I hope you all are having a great weekend. Don't forget your blogs are due tonight uh, or whenever uh, you're listening to this on Sunday the uh, fourth to the Dropbox. And then you've got one comment only this time to do. So only one comment and it's due by Sunday, uh, Wednesday night. I'm all messed up now. We'll take this test on um, Monday. So be prepared for that. And then we'll review on Tuesday for your midterm. And then we'll take your midterm on Tuesday, on Wednesday. Uh, my days are all over the place now. All right, guys. Anyways, once again, I hope you had a great weekend. Uh, we've made it to the halfway point. We're almost to fall break. Uh, we can do this. Y'all uh, take care and I'll see y'all in class. All right. Later.